welcome back to the Aryan and the Jew, or as it's called in hashtag format, Aryan Jew Show. This is episode eight, and uh, we write the hashtag Aryan Jew Show with capital A, J, and S. My name is Aaron Flam, and my talking partner today, as always, is Alexander Bard. It is still the second day. I think it is the end of the second day. We're moving into truth, weakness, strength, and I ask a lot of questions by now. Here he is, Alexander Bard. Enjoy. So from Michel Foucault mm-hmm. to Susan Sontag, because I think uh, coming here cured Susan Sontag of her the worst parts of her socialism, as far as I could tell from the letters. Let's move into Marx. Because you like Marx, you call yourself a Marxian. And I've met Brendan O'Neill before, and he also calls himself a a Marxian. There's nothing in your positions that would reveal you as Marxian to me, really. Mm -hmm. Because my problems with Marx, I've told you before, but I'll tell you again, because we have listeners now. So my problems are essentially his critique of the Gotha program, which is uh, an economic idea that I find, and most economists nowadays find false, which is... He's a terrible economist. Yeah. And Communist Manifesto is signed by Karl Marx together with Engels, and it's a terrible book. It's just very, very infantile. So he wrote a lot of crap. He was also, ironically, a Jewish anti-Semite. So you're going to have a lot of problems with Karl Marx if you start reading him. Uh, What I mean is that I'm a Marxist in the sense that I'm anti-Rousseau. So it's all about the old leftist struggle between whether Marx or Rousseau is going to be the hero of the left. And this is the difference between celebrating the hero and celebrating the victim. Because with Rousseau, you always end up celebrating victim, victimhood, and the victim. And that means you end up with a totalitarian society where everybody's fostered into an ideal that cannot be anything but victimhood at the end of the day. It's what Rousseau drove the French Revolution, his bloodiest faces. And Marx does celebrate. He shares with Nietzsche. This is after Hegel. He does share with Nietzsche the celebration of the heroic. And to him, it is the proletariat. So I use Marx. I'm not so much a Marxist in the sense that I believe in Marx or that I fight with Marx. I'm joining a Marxist political party, anything like that at all. Far from it. But I use Marx and I use Marx the sociologist. You cannot deny the fact that Netocrats, the first book of Robert John Sadek, is a very, very Marxist book. It is. It takes a Marxist take on contemporary society. It essentially asks the question, what would Karl Marx have said about the internet? Well, he wouldn't have talked about the proletariat any longer or the bourgeoisie or anything like that at all. He would say the bourgeoisie is over more more or less. We have a new elite that are going to use this tool, the internet, to achieve power and control the world. And we call them netocrats, net aristocrats or netocrats. And the opposite of that is no longer the proletariat because the world is so tragic now that it's not even through your work and your contribution that you, you become an underclass that can somehow achieve something. You'd rather get an underclass that can never achieve anything. It will never move ahead of anything. And we call it the consumptariat. And it's a completely tragic underclass in our work. So we base our work on Marxist sociology. So, because it's a good explanatory model. Yeah, and the word Marxist has very often also been used as sort of an academic title. Like you're a Marxist, you work from Marxist sociology, you're a Weberian, you work from Marx Weber sociology, which you also do. And, and, and I'm only a Marxist in this capacity. This is what I mean. So this is exactly why the term Marxist libertarian starts to make sense, because by adding libertarian, I'm obviously not a Marxist communist. I do not believe in the communist utopia at all. 
I think it was dangerous, and no, he was you're better than enough. Obviously, not a communist. You love capitalism. Well, you, I, well, you, I think you, capitalism you, is just value exchange and nothing else. It's, it's just a form of. It's about economy. Yes, I don't think they're different economies. No, I even don't. Even economical I, system. No, I. It's think, just an economical system. Either you put hindrances to it and you start to try to control it, which what communism did, or you just let it loose and then it becomes anarchism, or you control it somewhat for its own efficiency, meaning that you control the system in a way that it will achieve maximum results, mm -hmm. and then you essentially have modern capitalism. No, no, I agree completely. Yeah. I, I, I see it as an organic system of trade that grows out of us. And I to... love trade. Yes. And I love value exchange and value communication. So I don't have a problem with that at all. No, neither did Marx. No. Marx loved no, growth. No, he didn't, exactly. He loved, this he just didn't, he didn't like capitalists, but he loved capitalism. Yeah, he said it's the best we've achieved so far and let's see if we can achieve something better. And that's what he tried to do that. I don't do that at all. I'm, I'm not a Marx in that sense at all. It's only my analysis. I'm not saying we should go into the information society. I'm not saying we should go into the internet age. I'm not saying it's going to be any better or worse than anything else he had before. I'm just saying it's going to be very, very different. So if you read my and John's books, you have a guide. What's happening and what's important, what's not important. Because if you listen to what media tells you, they use a lot of old models and they focus on completely the wrong things. That I've noticed, thank you so, very much, since I also read your books. So, so it's, it's only when I'm arguing with the Rousseauian that I'm really becoming Marxist. Yes, my, and it's my other problem... To, and I'm I going to the tribal heroic. And if you're going to the tribal heroic, the hero of the tribe being the role model for the rest of the tribe. If you want to go into that, you're getting very close to Marxism. You're also getting very close to an alliance with the masses against the elites, which is the other great thing with Marxism. I do actually believe that people out there are more clever than the elite because the elite is so full of itself and so corrupt. It doesn't know what's best for it. I, I trust people out there way more than I trust the elite. I always go with the underdog rather than the elite if I can have a choice. Always, constantly. And maybe then I'm more Foucaultian. Foucaultian, then I'm Marxist today. You, you can call it either way. But this is the inheritance that Foucault and Marx share. And I think even with Nietzsche, there is a certain sort of, it, it's not the elite when he talks about the aristocrats, it's more about a creature coming in the future who's uncorrupted. But Nietzsche has nothing, or he's nothing for, for, for the elites of Germany at the time when he wrote his book. No, he hates Germans. He hates them a lot. He's disgusted with them. And that he shares a passion with Marx and Foucault in that case. Yeah, but... Because I wanted to return, because you, you, you call Marx a self-hating Jew, or an anti-Semite, basically. There's definitely that trace in him, yes? Yes, and I agree. I think he was an anti-Semite. But I want to talk about self-hatred, because I think Marx is a good example of it. Because he didn't grow up Jewish. His parents converted to Christianity before he was born. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is where uh, self-hatred, at least in Jews, I think, comes from. Because what you, what you suddenly have is someone who grows up in a Christian home, and he's not even a believer in the Christian God, Marx. Marx is an atheist, right? He thinks religion is stupid. Mm -hmm. And yet, everyone around him calls him a Jew. From the time that he's a small child, Jew, Jew, Jew. No, I'm not a Jew. No, I'm not a Jew. But he can't escape his bloodline. And that, I think, develops into some form of self-hatred. Because what is this system, this system of Judaism, that you can leave and you can say that you don't belong to, and yet you can never leave? 
mm-hmm. you have to wrestle with this, this, this identity. Who am I, you know, because you have to also contrast this with who you are as a person. And, and, and being a Jew is a tribal identity. It's something foisted upon you. It's not your own individual choice. The only thing you can choose is how you should relate to it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this is where I think that uh, a person like Marx becomes an anti-Semite. And I think it's uh, completely obvious in all his works. And the fact that you don't see it as much anymore because they don't translate and they don't reprint those more anti-Semitic works is basically just, you know, a socialist trying to clean up history, mm-hmm. which they do quite a lot. I think Marx is probably quite a disgusting figure in general. Probably, but yeah, you can but be a lot a ge- of great figures are. Yeah. Rousseau was charming. Yes, and Voltaire was an anti-Semite, and I still yeah. lo- love Candide. So. And this is the thing when you start reading philosophies, that you don't actually take a stance on whether these guys were nice or not. You actually take a stance towards their text. You, you read the text. Are they and, right or not? Is the, are they interesting or not even? <laughs> are they right or not yes. if you ask a scientist? Yeah. Is the scientist right or not? But philosophy, because it's an art form, is really, is this an interesting idea? Can it be explored further? Does it open up my mind? To expand my mind by, by, by going into this idea, you know? And so, so philosophers have to be interesting, and it's their thinking that has to be interesting, not their language. It's not the quality of the literature. It's not. It's not whether they're poetic or not that ultimately determines the value of philosophical work. Philosophical work is valued simply on its ideas and whether they're explored fully and in an interesting way. So a lot of stand-up comedians I've noticed are a lot like uh, matadors in Spain. They don't have sex before a big game, the matadors. I mean, in a stand-up comedian's case, it's more like they don't masturbate before going on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because sexual energy can be converted into creative energy, isn't that true? Well, you can masturbate, but you must not come. That's the rule of tantra. Well, and, actually, and actually, the more sexually aroused you are, the more liberty you have in your head as well. But the problem is coming. And this, of course, the, the, the problem with the male orgasm is that you're just completely exhausted after that. Your energy is just gone. And I think it's good that we started talking about this because you've been mentioning the word phallic now for about six hours in, in a row. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought we'd move into male sexuality, actually. And I've noticed two things in, in my own sex life, uh, and I'm a heterosexual male. So there are two things about coming for me. The first, I don't experience this as much anymore as I did when I was young, but the first thing is directly after the orgasm, uh, like a, a really, really brief moment of disgust mm-hmm. that makes me want to get up and get out. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced this? Well, it's just a fleeting, like less than a second almost, but it's very, very powerful. Well, it's kind of over with me. So this release but literally release. Uh, if, you know, I enjoy two guys and a girl in the room together. A nymphomaniac needs at least two men. So I think they deserve that. But when I come, I'm very much the guy sneaks out into the kitchen and, you know, take some liver pate out of the refrigerator and, and just enjoy myself and turn on, you know, light a cigar. You're right? an egotist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I leave the other guy with the girl to finish the job, right? So uh, I try to trick the other guy into believing that he wants to stay in the bedroom alone with her. So I can get out of the room and sort of, I'm done. I'm done with it. So this is, of course, the problem with the male orgasm. The whole shebang is pretty much finished. Yeah, and you feel... It's hard to pretend you're still interested. And that's the second thing. Afterwards, you feel drained of life, creativity, and strength. Which you literally are. Libido is one force. I love to divide things in my 
philosophy and you know, compartmentalize things and say that, well, this one thing that you think you have here is actually 16 different things, right? But when it comes to libido, it's one of those few things that actually I'm very adamant that it's just one thing. That means you've got a dick in your head, you've got a dick between your legs, and you better see libido as one resource. That means the more you use the dick between your legs, the less you'll use the dick in your head. And the more you can sort of accumulate the energy and go tantric, which essentially you can have as much sex as you like, preferably more rather than less, but don't come, or at least don't come very often. And you will experience that the tantric energy ends up in your mind instead, and you're busy working and getting engaged in things, and you're really engaged in the outside world, which is what libido is. It, it is libido has nothing to do with sex in itself. Libido literally means that which, in, that which wants to live inside of us. So libido means that within us that wants to live. So what do you say to a person who uh, likes masturbating as much as you and I do, uh, but uh, uh, can't uh, seem to understand that uh, uh, coming is not the goal of masturbation? Well, the first thing I ask them is, where do you get this idea from? That there's a goal to this, and that goal is your male orgasm. Who came up with that idea? Would you learn that from? And then it turns out just a value in our contemporary society. It's not very universal at all. Isn't it? No. Because, because I mean, most people could biologi biologically understand that if I masturbate and then come, I get a release. It's a biological sort of reward for masturbating. Isn't well, it? the question is, do you want to achieve that here and now? Are you going to make a baby? If no. not, then why come at all? Why not stay exactly on that level when the orgasm is it's at its best before you come? Because coming in itself is just a release. The ecstasy is in the orgasm itself, just right before coming. And what you train yourself to in Tantra, you train yourself to stay at that stage and then back off from that stage. So you can return to it again and then back off from it again. You return to it again. And that takes training. That's exactly why you train yourself tantrically. And how do you do that? You train techniques. Breathing? Well, and certain muscular movements and things like that, so you can avoid coming. I have several friends I work with, like Jakob Kergaard in, in Denmark and Thomas Hammerick from the TNT. Uh, What's the TNT? TNT, new tantra moment. Okay. New tantra moment. So there's a lot of tantra going on at the moment you can learn from. And when we do men's work, and we gather in the men's moment, a lot of it's actually about tantric knowledge because one of the first rules you learn when you work with other men is that do not seek gratification from women because then your brothers cannot trust you. A man who seeks gratification for women all the time. It's the type of guy you go to a bar with and suddenly he, you lose his attention. He goes off and tries to charm the, the women and he becomes a totally different person. And you're pretty disgusted with him because he's not reliable at all. It's like, he's like a little boy who has to get attention from women all the time. So the first thing you need to do as a man is to control your sexual desire, be in charge of it, get recognition from other men, and then enjoy having sex with women. Because the thing is that if you don't seek recognition from women, they will appreciate you much more. Then it's about sex and it's about love and it's about affection. But it's no longer about you being a little boy seeking recognition from his mother. Yes. Because they're disgusted with that. And it's interesting because you're into Tantra and the last book you wrote, uh, or are writing at the moment, which is coming out this fall, also has a bit of Taoism in it. And Tantric sex practices is a Taoist philosophy, isn't it? But Tantric is both in Buddhism and in Taoism. And you can also have Tantra and Hinduism as well. So Tantra and Tantra schools in themselves are not necessarily uh, located in any specific religion. You have Tantric schools all over India. You have Tantric schools in Burma, Chinese culture, Tibetan culture too. 
So the tantric schools are sort of separate and aligned with whatever religion you have in that area. But how did you become interested in tantric sex then? I became interested in tantric sex from a Hegelian perspective because I lived in a culture, which is Western contemporary society, which worships the orgasm. And I found that kind of childish. Why do you worship that? And then I discovered that women hate it when men only want to have sex for six or seven minutes. Because if a woman goes into her sexual mode and she really wants to have sex, she prefers it to be a couple of hours. Yeah. There's a big difference between having sex for two hours and having sex for six minutes. And if you're going to be a guy and you're going to please a woman, you better not think it's going to last for six or seven minutes. Because you're going to have a very frustrated woman who only got started when you come and you suddenly lose interest in the whole thing. That means she has to pretend she's interested. She has to pretend she was pleased. And you're going to ruin the whole sexual relationship pretty soon. So, I mean, after all, if you're going to have heterosexual sex, man and woman have to understand each other. And the better they understand each other and try to meet each other halfway, the better the sex will be. Well, why can't women understand men and just hurry it up and down to six minutes then? Because it gives them nothing. It's meaningless. They're just participating in the guy's masturbation. Nothing could be more boring. Nothing could be more degrading. And some women are trained to believe this is all they deserve, which is deeply unfair to female sexuality. Because female sexuality is, as we said at lunch, bottomless. It is, once it's opened up. That means that once you create a sense of safety and it's rules-based and you know that everything is being taken care of around you, then there's no limit to how horny a woman can be. No limit at all. Women can experience up to seven different types of orgasms to begin with. The female body is just completely Seven types of orgasms? Up to seven different types of orgasms, including womb orgasm. And most women only experience the clitoris orgasm, which is like the most battle of them all. The, the, the women only go into clitoris orgasm is the equivalent of guys who jerk off and come after three minutes. And what only, the, You only get started if you get there. So if they have seven, what are the other six? Well, I'm not going to go into that because okay. I think you should have your own podcast with a sexologist and discuss that in, in detail. So I'm not going to pretend I'm not, something I'm not. But what I'm interested in is learning Tantra for myself and for my partners, for men and women around me who I can have a sort of sexual relationships with, to understand the male body, to understand the female body, and to understand what happens to them when they interact. Because the, the thing with nature is that nature does not promise us harmony ever. Nature operates on disharmony. It's, it's dissatisfaction with things that we do that keep us going. It's dissatisfaction that means we, we want and we need to learn more and we need to go deeper. So we never arrive at a harmonious state when everything in our life is perfect or when a man and a woman, woman both can experience, you know, the perfect realization of their respective fantasies. So the sexual relationship is really not about achieving your sexual fantasy. It's about compromising on your sexual fantasy with somebody who has a different fantasy. And if you're not interested in that, if, if it's a man, you're not interested in exploring female sexual fantasy, then why have sex with a woman in the first place? That is a good question. Why yeah. would they? Yeah, exactly. Biological drive alone, I suppose. Well, maybe that's what sex work exists to a certain extent, because sex work is about you going to somebody, providing them with your sexual fantasy, and paying them to not have to compromise on it. Contrary to what most people believe, sex work is not about the ugly person buying sex from a beautiful person. And not how, at all. Alexander, would you know this? Because I've been a sex worker. Yes. And, uh, I know this. Sex but work. I know this, but I think it's fair to the listener that we should explain, okay. or you should explain... Uh, that you have a background in sex work. I was a sex worker when I was younger, and I enjoyed it very much, and I haven't regretted it ever, and I loved it, and I loved being surrounded by male and female sex workers who became friends for life. So I was really, really into that culture, and I still am. 
And I think my interest in Tantra today is probably an extension of that interest. I'm interested in the nervousness and the hypocrisy and the morality and everything else rotten around sexuality. We're very, very fucked up, literally, about sexuality in our society. And I trace it back to the fact that sexuality is the one force that we have to control in the tribe. Yeah, we have to. plays games with us constantly. Because you said it yourself, if we waste the energy on sex, no buildings will be built. Exactly. So you have to tame it and control it. And the person in control of the taming of sexuality in the tribe is the matriarch. She's a powerful old woman, and she's in charge of that. And she has a weapon here. If the young women who participated the ritual and get pregnant are not taken care of, so they can safely give birth to children nine months from now in a safe place where they're provided for. If that doesn't work, the tribe will go under. That means this is the fundamental storytelling of the tribe. We need to take our daughters from point A to point B safely, and we need to provide for them along this line, and we need to provide for them where they arrive, and then celebrate if we've done a good job. So all storytelling starts with this fundamental story of the young women pregnant on the move to give birth. This is the fundamental story on which we then base all the other stories later. So the matriarch must have enormous power. And the way it works is that the morality surrounding sexuality, the do's and don'ts of sexuality start among women. It is in the inner circle. It comes from the matriarch herself. Because that's the source of the female power, isn't it? Sex. It is, exactly. Definitely. Women are in control of sexuality. That is the source of their power. It is their job to say they yes or no. They have to keep that power They are too. the gatekeepers yeah. of the vagina. So, so who do you think is the betrayer among women? Uh, the prostitute. Well, the slut. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the slut is even more than the prostitute. The prostitute at least charges for the, the vagina. The, the slut just exactly. gives the it away. The prostitute is accused of being the slut. But slut shaming is a women do about a woman who's not present at a, at a meeting. So if women meet and another woman is not there or didn't arrive on time or whatever, she's being slut shamed. Because she's As, out giving it away. She's not, exactly. she's not at the OPEC meeting for vagina saying, like, this is how much vagina we can pump out, out of the ground. But we need to, you know, sort of set some sort of for the market. We can't let all the vagina out into the market at once. There will be inflation. Exactly. And this is why older women hate younger women who give away sex. And what older women hate the most is prostitution, simply because prostitution reveals how cheap sex actually is. It reveals that some women are willing to have sex for very little money at all, meaning it's not very valued in itself. And older women hate to be reminded of this because they've learned that they control their position by controlling sexuality. That means you control your husband or your partner through sex until a certain age when he starts looking around for younger partners. Then you better control these younger partners he doesn't have access to them. And by being violently against prostitution, which older women are in all cultures, by being violently against prostitution, you can make sure that your husband or the men of his generation don't have access to sex with younger women, meaning they have to return to you have no sex at all. Because you'd rather castrate a man than see him go off and have women have sex with another woman being happy about it. Female relationships with men is ultimately about manipulation. It's ultimately about manipulation. Manipulating other women and manipulating the man to stay with you. Doesn't sound very charming. I think we should invent something to mask this horrible, horrible state. What about uh, romance? Okay. <laughs> it doesn't sound very nice, but I actually find it very impressive and powerful. Deeply res- I'm deeply respectful of these. This is how a power structure would operate. I understand why women are obsessed with power and hierarchy, more than they're obsessed with truth. Because within the female collective, in the inner circuit, what pays off is not truth-seeking. 
or pace of his power and hierarchy. And ultimately, his power and hierarchy is built on the abjection of the slut. I mean, you have an abject that unifies the girls around the tables. When women are having a women's dinner and drinking wine, it's exactly at the point when somebody says that a woman is not there is being a slut and behaving like a slut and walking in heels that are too high, having skirts that are too short, wearing too much makeup. All those things point to her being a slut. And when she's being pointed out by the others and the other women go around the table, oh, yes, she's a slut. They feel total unification. So this is the objection among women. They, they make one woman the slut and they, they force her out of the system. That means for a woman who's, say, a nymphomaniac to survive, she only has one place to go, and that is realigning herself with the priesthood, realigning herself with the shamanic caste. So female shamans tend to be nymphomaniacs, meaning once they're forced out of the inner circuit, they're not welcome to the latest dinner. They're instead unified with mostly men and other women like themselves, who are at the outskirts of the tribe, at the very far outskirts of the tribe, where they need to take care of each other in what I call the shamanic caste in our work. And within the shamanic caste, there were a lot of women nymphomaniacs. What do nymphomaniacs do in religion? Hey, oracles, you know, female priestesses. They're always incredibly erotic women. They have lots of lovers. They're often bisexual. So they have a lot of sex and it's no longer related to to uh, to you know, uh, pregnancy or anything yeah, like that reproduction. Yeah, it's, it's no longer related. So they also then have to be tantric because if you're going to have a lot of sex and you're going to avoid getting pregnant, especially if you're a woman, you better be tantric. What do you mean? Can they avoid becoming pregnant through tantra? Well, if you avoid a man coming in you, well, that you is do true. not get pregnant. Yeah, so it's, so it's more the, about them teaching men to be tantric then. Yes, yes, and other women. And by teaching other women to be tantric, then you force the men to be tantric too. I mean, if you have sex with a tantric woman, you better be tantric yourself. She will not have sex with you if she discovers you're about to come in the next six minutes. She would just turn you down. She doesn't even care whether you're gorgeous or ugly or whatever. A tantric woman will first and foremost, look for male partners that can stay tantric with her. And she will appreciate them for it. She will really appreciate her lovers. So the tantric starts with the priestess saying, I don't want you to come in me, but I want to stay sexual with you for hours so we can reach religious states of ecstasy. And she, don't, she doesn't have to care about what the other women think of her because she's now arrived in a place where the slut actually survives because the slut who could not become a priestess who could not become an oracle or a female shaman, was killed. She was left to die. There's no way she'd survive. She'd probably be raped by guys from another tribe and then probably left to die in the forest with disregard from the other women because she's already a homo saucer. She is already a, a woman not wished to exist. So she can be, exp she can be expelled from the, from the tribe completely. So that's where uh, the female power really comes from then, sex. Well, then you look at goddesses. Yes. Look at any role that women have in religion. And it's incredibly sexual and tantric. And this is, of course, something that's scarce in society as a whole. Both patriarchy and matriarchy are scared of the fact there's a woman out there who fucks a lot and has a lot of sex. So both patriarchy and matriarchy has tried to tame this force, meaning they tame the priestess. But they fear her for or different reasons. Or try to get it out of the picture. Women fear her because they, uh, they see a loss of their own power when she, yes. when she lowers the value of the female sex organ. And not men, and men not fear her not for different reasons, yeah. don't they? They're not necessarily about the women. How do you escape being traumatized by the other women if you're a highly sexual priestess? I have no idea. but I'm You become the spokesperson to the gods. Oh, yeah. You become the representative of the goddess. 
And you also then might tell them exactly like a priest does to the chieftain. You tell him, I'm not going to have sons that inherit anything. If I have any children, they're only going to be priests. So I'm not going to go for your title. I'm not your competitor. I am your ally. So for the high priestess to survive in the female community means she can become the go-between between women and the gods. And then the matriarch can sanctify her and say that, well, we have you as an oracle. You're a high priestess. You represent us. You talk for women and you talk and you bring the goddess down to us. So you bring female power down to and us. And you have to have a lot of sex because you represent fertility. So that's yeah. okay in your so case. So what would you do if you're a matriarch and you have access to high priestess? You would make her a teacher to women about one abstaining from sex before the ritual and two going full on during the ritual. And then you have actually a functioning system, which is tribal, which is that the high priestess teaches the women how to be tantric and knowledge the matriarch doesn't necessarily control. The matriarch stays outside of the sexual. She rather has the high priestess teach her that, which is exactly the equivalent of the role of the priest in the patriarchy. The priest teaches men to be spiritual. The priest teaches men to have purpose. The priest teaches men to find their archetype within the tribe and stay within that archetype. Then you're fostered to that archetype through the chieftain. You're appointed a specific role. And the chieftain and the leader of the hunting team tells exactly what to do. So the priest shapes your role. And that role is filled with purpose. It's, fi it's filled with commitment. It's filled. This is what you're set to do. And that's the chieftain's job. To return to uh, the male fear of the female slot, that's another fear than the female fear of the female slot, right? Yeah, it is. Because that's you're the fear of... You're not afraid of, of her, or you're, you're afraid of the consequences among men if you fuck with her. Are you sure? Yes. Or are you, aren't you afraid of your own inadequacy? No. If you fuck with the slut and it's outside the ritual, meaning it's outside the rules of sexuality, because the rule of law starts in sexuality. So in the tribe, it's very much about sexuality. It's also a measurement for whether you can be controlled or not. Can you be tamed or not? Well, if you control your sexuality, you can be tamed just about everything. If you cannot tame your sexuality, you're constantly fucking around. You're useless and it'll probably go and kill you. So the guy is scared of being pointed out among men as a shame of the men. Because you would, what would you do with a rapist if you're accused of being a rapist? We would kill him. Yes, the man would drag him out of the forest and the patriarch himself would cut his dick off and then cut his neck off to warn the other guys. This is what we do with the guys who don't follow the rules. And that means the rules in general. But don't you think there is an inherent male fear of the female sexuality, the bottomlessness of it? Well, there is a fear of chaos. And that's what it is. Female sexuality is chaos. That's exactly what chaos is. You look into it, it's just like, wow, it's huge. It swallows everything. It's not controlled. Yeah. It's scary like shit, isn't it? I think so, yes. Chaos is scary. And female sexuality is chaotic. It's not controlled at all. And the woman is, why should she control it? If you're going to fuck her and have sex with her, you must, with your determined voice and with your dick, control her. That's exactly why you fuck the woman calm. You fuck her from chaos to order. That's what a dick does. But That's why the phallus represents order. Because it literally provides order when you have sex with a woman. You have sex with an nymphomaniac and the first thing she says after you fucked her is that, oh God, finally I get some release. It's that she's haunted until she gets fucked. 
It's funny, in certain cases when it comes to your philosophy, it's very hard to bring you down from the heavens to the ground. But when it comes to sex, it really all works out, doesn't it? I mean, well, it's not even symbolic anymore, it's just literal. It is literal. Freud meant that. Freud meant exactly that. He meant that sexuality is at the bottom of everything. Or the way Lacan expressed this is that whenever people talk about something else, they always mean sex. And whenever people talk about sex, they mean something else. So what are we, we talking? So what talk are we talking way? about now? We can, well, we can because we're sitting here having a very, very frank philosophical discussion. And in psychoanalysis, possibly on a meta level, you can do that. But otherwise, in general, when people talk about something, they will talk about something sexual, except when they talk about sex, because they're actually avoiding the sexual and talk about something else, like self gratification or self value or something else is going on, or like the willingness to live or the willingness to die, or whatever. They're, es they're escaping from other issues when they're moving to talk about sex all the time. Whereas when they talk about anything else, it's essentially the sex drive that talks through them. And Freud's great insight is that the sex drive is at the bottom of everything and it, it goes through everything we do. And because he later in his work arrives at the sex drive and the death drive being the same thing. Well, it's a drive towards orgasm. And in that sense, the sex drive is the death drive because the orgasm is the little death, right? So... Okay, say Freud was right about that too. But that also means that the death drive, the mortido, is the foundational drive. Drive begins and starts with mortido. Libido is only a schematic illusion on top of mortido. We are convinced we want to live when our subconsciousness really is driving us towards our death. That That's is. how the human mind functions. And we call this in our work, we call the dialectics between libido and mortido. And this, of course, the same as the Chinese would say dialectics between yang and yin. It's exactly the same thing. So Freud was really on to it. He was more Taoist than he thought. In that libido is only an illusion dancing on top of mortido. But mortido is not accessible. You cannot, through your consciousness, access mortido directly. Because you, you want to do that, you have to castrate yourself completely and then see what happens. What would happen? You want to die. Yes, I've probably. never met a man who would love, who would accept to live without his dick. If he cut his dick off, he wants to kill himself. But they have, there have been eunuchs. In yeah, the... but they were, they, were, they were castrated when they were young. So to have no experience of what it was like to live with a full-grown dick. If you castrate a grown-up man with a full-grown dick, he will literally go and kill himself. Because you've killed him. Yeah, you have. We, we, you, we men associate our dicks, the phallic, we associate that with whatever can give us purpose. You cannot have any purpose whatsoever if you don't literally have a dick. I mean, you might as well cut your head off because your head is the dick in your head. It's your other dick. So if you cut those two off, you cut any one of those off, what would be the point in living as a man in the first place? None. No. That's exactly why Freud uses the word castration. But he means with castration is that society tames us and domesticates us into roles where libido can be used for a specific purpose. That's why Freud uses the word castration. And now we live in the West in 2018 in Sweden, one of the most sexually liberated countries in the world, according to itself. And we're more castrated than ever. How come? Because we're hypocrites. We're not facing the fact of actually castrating ourselves in the society. It's a very asexual society. It's unsexualized. It's like we've removed sexuality from a central role in our society. And we are incredibly sexually frustrated. Well, it's an That's why sexual now. addictions are so common in our society. Because you don't... It's not, it's not how much you have sex that sort of responds to your sex drive. 
If you have a lot of sex and do nothing else, actually your sex drive gets more and more frustrated, right? Because the point is not to have a lot of sex. The point to nurture and tame and keep your sex drive and turn it into strong libido. Meaning you wake up in the morning and you think, great, it's a new day. Give me a cup of coffee and off I go and I do stuff. That is when you're in the state of libido. And for a man, that means you're in a phallic state. For women, we call it you're in the matrical state. You're at maximum libido in your life. And that's where we should be. That's when we achieve our greatest potential. And then we should have a sex life, sure, and a rewarding one. But, but if sex takes center stage, you think the sex drive is only about sex, you completely miss the point. And then you're gonna, all your energy is going to go into sexual activities. And you're going to use only a small part of your potential to other stuff like work or taking care of people, whatever you want to do in your life. You're going to achieve a lot less. That's why sex addiction is so frustrating, because you achieve nothing. Nothing gets done. You jerk off all the time. You run around finding girls to fuck all the time. Well, if you do that constantly, you're not going to have any energy left for anything else. You're not going to achieve anything. And there'd be nothing for you to be proud of. The Casanova is a tragedy. Yes, he is. It's not an achievement. It's It's a big tragedy. The sex addict is a tragedy. And it's also the only addiction you cannot get out of your body. Why? Because it, it's an inner drive inside your body. It's not a drug you add. Because I didn't even believe in uh, sex addiction until I met some of my colleagues when I started stand-up 10 years ago and I realized, oh, these guys aren't in it for the jokes. They're I tell really- you, the most common sex addicts among men are, are men who grew up with a psychotic mom. And they actually, it's the revenge against their mom. They can't deal with her. So the revenge against their mom is to fuck as many women as they possibly can and throw them out and replace them and have another one. And if they're physically attractive, good at having sex, they suddenly get rewarded for it. And when they get into their, you know, when they're 25, 30 years old and they discover that they have sex with 500 women a year, finally they get a bit exhausted and they're shameful of it. And it's when they go into mode where they even start fucking their own friends, girlfriends behind their own friends' back, which they very often do. They've gone into self-hatred mode and incredibly frustrated. Then sex has become, which in psychoanalysis is called compulsive repetitive behavior. It's just empty. It's just pure sex, one female body after the next, conducting a constant revenge against the mother who's not there. That That's sounds... the most common. So the overbearing, dominant, in worst case, a psychotic mother is very often a motor for male sex addiction. Very often. I don't know how to end this now. It became <laughs> very dark at the end. <laughs> well, it's at least if we spread the awareness of it. I believe in enlightenment and I believe in awareness. I believe the reason we do these things, we write our books, we make our speeches, we make our podcasts, is that we think we have something we want to share and we want to go into dialogue, as we are with each other right now, with others who can teach us so we can learn more. And by learning more, we can, we can help those who are stuck. Well, I always invite you, now we're doing this as a common project, but uh, I always invite you in order to, to sort of uh, try and get one in on you. Just one, one intellectual punch every once in a while, and so far, none. Oh, you, but, yeah, I but, give you one. What, really? I've what? given up on being a Marxist. Oh, thank you, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> it's an historical moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I stay with Hegel. I'm an Hegelian, <laughs> yes. and I give up on Marx. Okay, there's, thank there's you. There's a certain point where you discover there's just too much garbage to protect and drag around that it doesn't serve any purpose. But I do have this one thing. I will be a Marxist if I meet the Rousseau and just to kill him with leftist arguments. I will accept that. But only for that reason. Yes. I don't think we need Marx anymore. And there's nothing in Marx you can't find in other thinkers that do it better. Nothing. Agreed. Overrated. That's how I feel about Marx. Oh, he's definitely overrated, yeah. Because, you know, in, in all these questionnaires, when they ask people on the street who was the greatest thinker of the last hundred years, they say Marx. And that's well, certainly not. Well, 
first of all, it's been more than 100 years. Yes, to begin with. Means yeah. They don't even know who he is or have read him. Yeah. Right? No, you have other you have the giants of the of the 19th century, I would say Hegel, Darwin, Nietzsche, and Freud, and say Charles Sanders Peirce among the Americans as well. Then you have the real giants of the 19th century thinkers. And Marx is not even close to any of them. No. And I would throw in Jung. Actually, I would I like Jung. Yeah, yeah, Jung. <laughs> but, but I, I consider him 20th century. Yeah. Oh yeah. That is, put him in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and okay. Freud are like Fine. in between, so I'd yes. rather put Jung in the 20th century. He's the early, he's the great thinker of the early 20th century. Absolutely. The great thinker on the social. And I think that's enough for today. And we begin again tomorrow. If we're still alive, we start again tomorrow. Cool. Absolutely. I intend to be alive. Thank you for listening to The Aaron and the Jew. My name is Aaron Flam, and you have been listening to me and Alexander Bard. Alexander Bard can be followed on Twitter under his nom de guerre at Bardissimo or Facebook. Apart from an earlier life as a pop star and a TV personality, he's an author and philosopher in his own right, focusing on the melding of man and technology. Together with Jan Söderqvist, he has written several books, and their latest book, Digital Libido, Sex, Power and Violence in the Network Society, is in stores now. Digital Libido is a deep and brutal analysis of humanity's rapidly increasing sense of loss and confusion in the network society. Departing from Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, and his prophetic masterpiece, Civilization and Its Discontents, philosophers and futurologists Alexander Bard and Jan Söderqvist create a tour de force while digging deep into the human condition in the internet age exposing every aspect of the complex relationship between man and technology. Bard and Söderqvist clarify our current and future existential dilemmas. Order their book online if you're interested in reading it. Otherwise, you'll hear more from us next week. This has been the Aryan Jew Show. Until next time, have a good unit of time.